News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a lot of attention being directed at a study yesterday that was released by researchers at the University of Oxford. That's because there's so much curiosity, I guess, hope, concern, questions about the idea of mixing COVID-19 vaccines, where you take one kind of dose for your first shot and then a different vaccine for your second shot. So what what kind of repercussions are there for that? What are the consequences? What are the health concerns? I think here in BC, in Canada in particular, a little heightened concern of that because there's a lot of people like me who had AstraZeneca for their first shot. And now they're wondering, are we going to have AstraZeneca for the second shot? Is it going to be available or are we going to have to take something else? So that's why there was, I think, so many eyes focused on this study. The early results, actually, we should mention, that came out from Oxford yesterday on this. So let's find out what this study had to say. Uh, joining us is Crystal Gumansinger, Global News European Bureau Chief. Crystal, thank you very much for joining us this morning to talk about this. So what did we learn about this study about mixing vaccines? Well, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot to these preliminary findings that were published in a letter in The Lancet. However, it is a bit of a clue. And what officials in Canada interpreted to mean was it is going on what they had hoped and what they had expected as far as the hunch of what would come from mixing a vaccine. So I'm going to go through sort of what was found out first and then why Uh um, a number of officials sort of thought this is what would happen. So what we have been told is that, um, you know, mixing vaccines, specifically looking at uh, Pfizer and Oxford AstraZeneca did not add sort of any other safety concerns. So that is that is good news. That was one of the things that we wanted to find out. Would, was it going to be safe to mix these vaccines? Individually, vaccine safe. Though, so they thought that there would be no issues. They haven't seen any during this uh, part of this trial with more than 800 participants all over the age of 50. That is worth noting. But they did find that with the mixed dose group, they had um, a stronger reaction. So more cases of mild to moderate reactions after the second shot. And the second shots were given for this part of the study at the four-week interval. Now, that is the area that a lot of Canadians are thinking, aha, that is interesting. Now, the theory is that the stronger reaction you have to it, so those flu-like symptoms, those chills and aches and headaches, um, that is your body reacting to the shot, your body Uh building immunity. So a strong reaction can be um, theorized that that is your body creating a really robust immune response. And so if people who are older had a really strong immune response, that could mean that younger individuals would have an even stronger response because we know your immunity wanes as you get older. So that's why a lot of people are sort of excited with these preliminary findings. Okay, so what happens now, now that they've got these preliminary findings, what are the next steps? Well, this research is going to continue. So this was the first little part of this study in the UK, but they've since added uh, two more vaccines to the mixing schedule. They've added more people to the uh, to the trial itself. So it's going to build up and build out over the next several months. We should have some more information as far as does this actually result in better immunity? What kind of immunity does it create within the next month or so? So the, the trial Uh, investigators are saying that potentially June, July will have some of that data, and then they'll start adding more. But we're also getting more of these sort of studies. Spain is starting this sort of work as well. And we know that there is a study that will be done in Canada. It has one level of approvals at this point. It's still in the early stages. They have to get a few more approvals, but the work will also be happening there. So we'll end up with some really good information at multiple sites, multiple different countries and involved to get a really good understanding of, you know, how does this all work? And we have to remember, this happens with other vaccines. We have other really well-known vaccines that are based on like Mm -hmm. a mixed dose schedule. So there's good theory here, early indications, quite positive. So which vaccines were they mixing here? 
So they were specifically mixing uh, Oxford AstraZeneca with Pfizer. So it would be the, either the AZ followed by Pfizer or the other way around. And then they also, because this is a single blind trial, there were also people who were given that standard dose of two shots of the same vaccine. So single blind, they will be doing and are currently right now adding two other vaccines into the mix. And they're also trying out um, the idea of, okay, well, can you take some sort of prophylactic um, paracetamol? to sort of help with these side effects. So they're starting to change up and try to get a better understanding of what people can do to limit these side effects. Because there is also, you know, some, some good information right now from this. And what we heard from the chief investigator, Matthew Snape, was, you know, while these are very, very early findings, and we can't read too much into it, we do know that if a country decides, yeah, we're going to go with mixing, as he put it, you may not want to, you know, mix dose an entire ward of nurses because they might be sick for Ooh. a couple of days, right? Yeah, so exactly. Some good, some good, very basic knowledge for any country looking at this right now. Well, it seems like a lot of countries are looking at this, right? Like, isn't Canada also watching this closely? Canada is watching this closely. And when I spoke with one of the scientific directors on the science advisory panel in Ontario, he said, you know, this is encouraging. This is really good. We, But no, no decisions can be made based on these preliminary findings that, you know, we'll have to wait for the full conclusions uh, and that any mixing that does happen in in his view would be sort of the exception not the rule that if this happens uh, it will be based on on more fulsome science and and that will be coming very very soon all right we'll wait for that crystal thank you so much you're welcome nice to speak with you that's Crystal Gumansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief. She was digging into this study. These are the early results from a University of Oxford study that found mixing two vaccines, so two different kinds of vaccines, may increase the frequency of mild to moderate side effects, but the symptoms lasted no longer than a few days, no hospitalizations, no other safety concerns in this early study. Uh, and they do believe that it is effective. But as we pointed out numerous times, this is an early study and there is more to come on that. But lots of places, including Canada, Health Canada, watching very closely. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, a lot of people's daytime TV watching habits are going to change next year after Ellen DeGeneres announced that her talk show is going to be coming to a close in the spring of 2022 after 19 seasons. Have a listen. And today I have an announcement to make. Today I am announcing that next season, season 19, is going to be my last season. So the past 18 years, you have to know, has changed my life. You all have changed my life. And I am forever grateful to all of you for watching for laughing, for dancing, sometimes crying. This show has been the greatest experience of my life. Okay, so that's Ellen DeGeneres making the announcement yesterday. Of course, it's been a very tumultuous, ooh, six months, year for her. Uh, for more on this, we're going to chat now with our contributor, Raji Silhal. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, 19 years is a long time. But so uh, is 60 Emmys just so substantial in terms of the amount of awards that this show has won across the board over the years. And who didn't love Ellen, her dances, her friendliness? I mean, she made people extremely happy during an episode, For a long right? time, like, yeah. In yeah, fact, she just, was talking yesterday about how she wanted to quit or she was thinking about walking away, I think, four years ago, three years, four years ago, when she signed her last contract. And her brother was the one who convinced her to stay because he told her this show makes so many people happy, you know, like, why, 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 why wouldn't you want to keep on doing this? But I'm thinking maybe she should have quit because given what happened in the last year, it sounds like she's just not a very happy person away from the show. Yeah. And uh, for those who aren't aware, she just, um, well, the whole show got in trouble pretty much uh, because it w it came out that they had a very toxic work environment behind the scenes. So despite the fact that the show was a happy dance, fun time with celebrities and whatnot, uh, behind the scenes, 
toxic. Three top producers ended up uh, getting exited from the production in 2020. And Ellen DeGeneres apologized. She promised a new chapter. But then the story started to come out. And they were public, they were very public attacks because she was learning about them as the public was. So people were uh, sharing that um, they didn't feel comfortable talking about the sexual harassment that occurred at work or uh, that it wasn't a safe place for people of color to work. And there was there was a lot of abuse there. It was a toxic work environment, which is so hard for us to like wrap our head around. Yeah, Yeah, just it doesn't make sense given how nice and kind she is. But the thing is, power can exploit. And I think she just you know she made over eighty million dollars a year. Holy moly! So yeah, so I think she became a little disconnected from the people that she worked with. And she told the Hollywood Reporter that the public attacks during the time destroyed her but did not influence her decision to end the show. And the internets Mm. are saying no chance, no chance. I mean, in her career, she could actually, she could keep going. And she says that uh, she's dropping it actually because she doesn't feel that the show challenges, challenges her anymore. She says, and as great as this show is and as fun as it is, it's just not a challenge anymore. I need something new to challenge me. Um, The challenge is take on abuse. Take on these topics that have arisen as a result of your last year and bring it to air. Like do something with your platform rather than turn away with your tail between your legs and say, oh, I'm just kind of bored now. I'm going to go. I'm going to go elsewhere. Like, no, I'm not having it. Yeah, I know what you mean. She in her statement yesterday when I was like, and I don't watch a lot of Ellen, but obviously I've watched her over the years. It's been 19, like a long time, almost 20 years. But she said something yesterday that really stuck with me where she said one of the things that she had learned over the past year is that every interaction with someone matters that you know it may not be a big deal to her but it's a big deal to that other person even when she's out in public and I thought how could you not know that how could you not know that if people are meeting you or seeing you out in public that they're going to remember that about you obviously for the rest of their lives especially if it's not a good interaction right Oh, just so disconnected, so disconnected. And so many stories came out uh, during that period from past employees who are past employees because they couldn't work there anymore. The abuse was so bad. And it's strange because DeGeneres is, she's an advocate for animals, obviously for gay rights, and majorly so for anti-bullying campaigns. That's weird. Uh, when her show was full of bullies. I know that somebody here is going to be devastated by that because our very own Jill Bennett is a huge Ellen DeGeneres fan. Oh, she's actually been it. to the I show and too. sat in the audience. Like she's oh, done really? that. Like she loves the show. Uh, yeah, and but how heartbreaking. It, yeah, I know. So for people for that's part of their daily thing is watching Ellen. But you know what? It's probably a good thing because I think oh, people, it became difficult for some people to watch her being like, there's all these stories about your behavior and then you come on and you're like this. And it just, it was hard to square that circle. Enough so that uh, audiences fell so dramatically in the past six months after the uh, internal inquiry went into the media. Um, And as it should, like, you know, people have to be held accountable. And usually when we worship stars as much as we do, we're bound to be disappointed at some point. Yeah, exactly. She actually feels that the, the workplace stuff from last year was felt orchestrated against her. So she, I think it feels like she has a little bit of a persecution complex about this too. But Mm -hmm. uh, there you go. If you're an Ellen fan, you can get your fix until spring of next year. Um, I guess, Raji, we'll have to watch something else. Have to go back to Days of Our Lives. Haven't watched that in years. (laughs) Is it still on there? (laughs) Yes. Just got renewed for a couple more years so I can go back to watching that. I'm sure some of the same people are still on it. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's Raji Sohal, our morning show contributor. We'll be talking to her a little bit later on the show. This is Mornings with Simi. We're talking about drug decriminalization. We know that Vancouver is on the path to making that happen. There is a process that's underway. But this week, a coalition of 15 different organizations said, listen, we need to stop this process. They don't, they don't like the path that it's on. We had a chance to speak with Garth Mullins, who is with the, uh, with Vandu, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, host of the Crackdown podcast. And we asked him, well, what should happen next? And here's what he said. Well, it's kind of over to the mayor um, and and the city, and I guess the police. Those are the, the people who seem to be uh, driving the process. Um, and we've sort of said, look, we're we're happy to work together on this. In fact, uh, Vandu, the, the drug user group, 
we rapidly did some surveys um, with some advice from academics on how to do them uh, really well to find out what a good good levels would be, what a good approach would be that would would actually decriminalize you know drug users in Vancouver. And um, we did that really fast, and we we already are having some data. So we're happy to help them reset the levels and some of the approaches very quickly, not even interrupting their timeline. So um, it's it's up to them. They, you know, our we have a, a storefront and a phone number, and they can uh, get a hold of us anytime. Okay, so that's Garth Mullins. He said it's over to the mayor. We thought, let's find out what the mayor says. So Kennedy Stewart, mayor of Vancouver, joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. It's good to be here, Cindy. Okay, so what's your response to that? They would like to see a stop put to this process and more contribution. Yeah, so first of all, I'll uh, say that I did, of course, meet with Vandu yesterday. I saw the new data, and uh, this this process, you know, it's never been done before in Canada, so it's going to be a bit messy. Uh, we have learned from what's happened in other, other countries, but we're also doing a distinctly uh, Vancouver model here that I think everybody agrees on, that this should be a health-centered approach to uh, dealing with addiction, uh, to basically you know, try to move the police out of, uh, out of this and, and let the doctors and nurses uh, take over. And I, I, th- I think we're all agreed on that. I think where we're having some dispute is how much uh, should somebody be able to carry uh, on their person, um, uh, and that, that's the threshold that uh, Mr. Mullins was talking about. Okay, so did you make any progress in that meeting? Is that number going to change? No, at this point, um, and I think there's a misunderstanding of how how this all works, is that, uh, you know, this will be an iterative process. It's kind of like um, the uh, safe consumption sites. It's the same the same process. We knew, you know, back in the 90s when, when the first uh, insight was approved that we needed many more uh, consumption sites, but we started with one in order to kind of get the model right and to get make sure everybody was comfortable with it because you have to bring the, the public along as well. So this is the same with decriminalization. Is, um, the uh, Vandu and, and other folks want to uh, set thresholds at the maximum or close to it uh, many, many more times than what we're proposing. But uh, from my perspective, I have to look over the, the whole city. And so uh, we have to, I think, propose initial limits that uh, can be agreed on by all parties that are involved. Uh, for example, the city, the, the uh, Vancouver Coastal Health and the police. And so I think we've arrived at that limit and we'll be moving ahead with our application, uh, submitting it in in days. So what you're saying is, and you got to bring everyone else along on this because not everyone may yet be convinced. Well, I, who makes the decision in the end is the prime minister. The, the health minister um, has the power to grant us his exemption. But of course, this is going to be a cabinet decision because it's, it's really important. Uh, it's a, and uh, so I think, you know, when you look at it that way, this is really a national decision. And I think that, for example, if we presented something to the health minister or prime minister and cabinet that, uh, for example, the police thought this will never work, and in fact they speak openly against it, then cabinet won't approve it. And, I, and so I think we're, we're trying to start uh, with a threshold that everybody can agree with, uh, get the exemption, and then work using science and the best data available to, to adjust those limits if, if need be. So what is the timeline like for this project then? Well, um, you know, this has never been possible before because there's been no health minister that has been open to doing this. So we have a health minister now in Patty Haydu, who I know from my time in Ottawa, who actually worked in harm reduction services before her time as, as minister. So we've talked often. She's open to this and has encouraged an application. So I picked that up and ran with it. And um, But I need to get this in before <laughs> there's a federal election or uh, the health minister changes because I don't know if a new health minister would be as open as uh, Minister Haydu. Okay, so you're saying time is of the essence. That sounds like you need to get it done like in the next six months. I Oh, absolutely. So we, uh, you know, I set out an ambitious timeline at the beginning. I've really pressed our city staff that have done an excellent job as well as the consultant team. Uh, the uh, we've already put in the first two phases of the submission with the final phase going in by the end of the month, and then it's over to Health Canada. Also to remember that the province is also committed to decriminalizing drugs in the province, so we have been sharing information with Minister Sheila Malcolmson as well as, uh, as other ministers um, because the province is interested in this too. So this will be a big change for uh, Vancouver, for British Columbia, and for Canada, and I'm feeling 
very uh, confident in in what we have is a, is a good model. It's not what everybody wants, but I think we can get there. Um, but the key is if we don't get that signature giving us the initial exemption, then this doesn't go anywhere. So is that your message then to those 15 organizations this week who went public? Is it, Are you saying patience? Yeah, I mean, I met with them yesterday. I met with Zandu. I met with uh, a number of the uh, organizations that I heard in the media yesterday. I explained to them my situation where if we delayed this for another six months or a year, it may never happen again. Now, some people said that's okay with us. We're happy to wait 10 years or more uh, for this to develop. And I think that's unacceptable. We're in the middle of uh, an overdose crisis where we have one person dying a day. So we have to act fast. And sometimes when you act fast, you can't do the level of consultation or study that you want. But I think people want action here. We've been in this public uh, health emergency provincially for five years. You know, we've had so many people die, including members of my own family. And, um, you know, we're, uh, we're moving ahead with this. So um, I think that's what people want right. is action. Um, it's, it's bumpy, but um, we got to get this off the ground. Let me also ask you on a slightly different topic here. Are you going to be part of this meeting uh, today, or have you spoken to the provincial government about the gang activity, your concerns at all about what's been going on? Yeah, I have a meeting with uh, Minister Farnworth, uh, I believe, today. I do also have a police board. Uh, we're having a roundtable about anti-Asian hate, hate crime, uh, what we can do to combat that, which is also spiraling you know, upward at an unacceptable rate. So absolutely uh, been in close contact. And actually, my next call at 8.30 was, is with the, um, the senior um, uh, bureaucrats in uh in Victoria, the police uh, that oversee police services in the in the province. So, yeah, absolutely working on that. Yeah. So, what what message do you take to that? Like, what needs to change for us to make some kind of an impact in this situation? Well, for me, and I've sent a submission to the um, to the to the province, who is now reviewing the Police Act. Uh, I think this has been a long-standing problem of having a fragmented uh, police services across the Lower Mainland. And I uh, look back to what Wally Opal has suggested on a number of occasions is we need, uh, we need a more integrated regional police service. Uh, and I think that uh, we keep having the same problem over and over again and report after report after report says we're, we're too fragmented. There, there's so many different police services. You know, there's RCMP, there's independent uh, police services in, in New West and Port Moody and, and in Delta and elsewhere. So uh, I think that it's time for the province to uh, change the legislation to better integrate our police services. Uh, VPD does great. Uh, I I think they really have an outstanding service, but we only extend to the borders of of Vancouver, and I think that uh, that's where some of the problems are occurring. Okay, so is that something you're going to be pushing for then with the province? Yeah, I have uh, submitted... um, uh, a report to the uh, provincial committee that's overseeing uh, police services, you know, the reform of the Police Act, and I hope to be uh, testifying there in uh, in the near future. Until then, um, you know, it's to do everything I can to support Chief Palmer and, uh, you know, the sworn officers who are pushing back as hard as they can against this. And I have absolute, we have the, you know, the best police chief in Canada here. So I think if anybody can get it, this under control, it's Chief Palmer and, and uh, by acting regionally. All right. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Okay. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about some of the things that have changed during the pandemic. And one of those things is how we interact with the healthcare system. We, some of us anyway, may prefer a phone call to the doctor or a virtual visit as opposed to actually getting into that doctor's office and visiting in person. A new survey has found really strong support for that idea of virtual care at BC Children's Hospital. Patients and families actually said they felt it was the same or even better than in-person visits. And those families said that they hope that this new emphasis on virtual care continues after the COVID-19 pandemic is over. So what does that look like? Are we talking about changing the system and in particular at BC Children's Hospital? Well, joining us now is Brendan Hirsch, a pediatric endocrinologist at BC Children's. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me this morning. Were you surprised by these results? Um, Virtual health is something that I've been 
taking part in for a number of years now. We've had a program at, in the Diabetes Clinic at Children's Hospital since 2014, yet it's grown slowly. It's responded to the request from families to start having care closer to their homes. But before the pandemic, it was only making up about 5% of all the visits that we uh, carry out in our diabetes clinic. We see, oh, I was just going to say, we see about 900 uh, families and children with type 1 diabetes, which is a very intensive medical condition, and they make up about 1,400 visits a year. So the vast majority of that before March of 2020 was all in person. Yeah, I was curious about that too, though, because BC Children's treats, you know, children all over British Columbia. So some of those visits must have been challenging for families. Yeah, and for people living with chronic medical conditions, that means that their routine throughout their childhood is likely traveling all the way down to Vancouver multiple times a year to have received their health care. And of course, we've all lived this, right? This seismic shift in the delivery of healthcare that's happened since the pandemic. You know, on March 25th, when the orders came in from the provincial office that we should no longer see routine care in person, our team had to pivot from 5% virtual care to 100% virtual care overnight. How do you decide what is virtual care and what isn't moving forward? Like, is that an option then that you provide to patients? That's a really wonderful question. So, you know, I was astounded to hear from our family uh, that we see in our type 1 diabetes clinic that 75% of them want virtual to be a part of their future. That is such a dramatic shift from where we were at as a healthcare system providing care. And it, I think it says that we probably weren't meeting a need that really was there. But you're right, we have to be really thoughtful now as we design our healthcare system moving out of the pandemic to try and identify which families this is working really well for and which families and situations would do better with an in-person visit. Okay, so this sounds like it's sad that it took a pandemic for us to realize this, right? But is this a project moving forward then? Okay, we have to nail this down before the pandemic is over so we can offer this to people. Just like everyone else in in Canada and around the world, we were all trying to get our feet on the ground in those early months of the pandemic as care providers and also, you know, in our personal lives as, as patients in the way that we interact with our healthcare people. But it was clear that it's incumbent upon us to also study this information, right? We haven't seen a shift in healthcare as dramatic as this in ages. And, you know, to tell you the truth, Sammy, we moved forward more in one day or one week than we had in 10 years in terms of our adoption of virtual care. So this is also a tremendous opportunity to see the, such a volume of virtual care happening and to learn from it. Right. So, Brendan, do you have any recommendations then for patients, for families who say, you know what, I'd like to do more of this with my practitioner? How do you how do you bring that up? Yeah, I'm I'm speaking from my seat as a subspecialty pediatrician, and so I work with uh, healthcare providers around the province and families around the province, providing very specialized advice. And I and I so I can't speak for all medical right. situations, but definitely I think realizing that there is an avenue there to start having the conversation and say, you know, uh, what it, like you mentioned in your intro, if it's you know you need a prescription refill for something that you've been on for a long time and things are going well, you know, very reasonable. And for me, providing advice around type one diabetes, much of that conversation can happen with people in their home environment. And to tell you the truth, in some ways, I think it's better because you wouldn't believe what a positive interaction we can have with people when they're comfortable and in their home setting. Yeah, they probably tell you more stuff, right? It's, it's what they tell you, and it's also what you just learn from watching the environment. So if I'm joining a, a family that only comes down here to see me, it may be only one parent who comes with them because of the cost of travel. But if I join them in their home in northern BC, perhaps the grandparents join in too. And I also get to see what the living situation looks like. And, um, you know, uh, what, posters are on, what posters are on the, the child's bedroom or, or uh, 
you know, what kind of uh, family support is there for that child in that environment? Yeah, those are really good points. Alison, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for your interest. This is Mornings with Simi. It's about three and a half million dollars a year. It's called the BC Agriculture and sorry, the BC School and Fruit Vegetable Nutritional Program. And what it does is it provides, you know, local fruits, vegetables, milk to students great idea, right? For some of those students, it might be their only access to really good quality fresh fruits and vegetables. But despite it being a great idea and it being around for 17 years, it sounds like it's not being funded anymore. The Agriculture Minister, Lana Popham, hasn't acknowledged whether program funding is going to continue, and that is obviously raising a lot of concerns. Joining us is Pat Ton, who's the Executive Director of the BC Agriculture in the Classroom Foundation. Pat, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for asking. What is the word on this? Like, is this going ahead or not? Um, well, there's certainly been a lot of deliberation in the last couple of days. I have had positive comments from the Minister of Agriculture. Um, I understand that there may be funding. I have no details, so I'm just not sure. Oh, see, now that's, that's it sounds like you've been asking for months, though, haven't you? Yes, that is the case. So do you have any idea what the concerns are? Because this seems like a no-brainer. Uh, for sure. It is a very positive program. It's been evaluated, you know, every second year by teachers and students and parents. And, and it's always been positively evaluated and, you know, keep it going. Um, but we're in unprecedented times, as everybody's saying. And I just suspect that it's something that has been slipped through the cracks. But I wasn't going to let that happen. I'm glad to hear that. So how good is this for farmers as well? Because they plant specifically for this, right? And you, you need volunteers for this. Well, absolutely. And that's why the decision is so critical right now. Because we have, you know, I don't know, about a thousand farmers, whether they're um, with dairy cows uh, getting, making the milk or whether they're with, um, planting in horticulture in greenhouses or on the field. And we need to secure those products because of the volume of, of what it takes to feed all the kids, you know, across our province. And so we need to be able to procure that product now. We need to be able to alert the volunteers that there's, um, you know, jobs to do in the schools and you know, food safe, distributing the, the product um, into the classrooms and that. And so we need to do the planning now because, of course, in July and August, the schools are closed and we can't connect with those those types of volunteers. So um, that's why it's so critical right now. Right. And how critical is this program, Pat? What kind of a difference does it make? Well, it, it definitely makes a difference. I mean, we hear from um, places like Atlin and Prince Rupert and Tumber Ridge and Williams Lake. Like, these are the only fresh fruits and vegetables that the kids regularly get, um, in, well, certainly in the classroom and sometimes in the community. I mean, we, we hear from First Nations uh, reserves like Mount Curry and Canham Valley and Tobacco Plains, places like Blueberry Hill. Like, this product comes directly into the school, into the classroom, and it gives the teacher a chance to talk about fresh fruit, vegetables, milk, and and they talk about making healthy eating part of a routine that lasts a lifetime. Yeah. And, and of course, that's good for all of us because we can prevent health concerns in the future then. I can't, couldn't possibly agree more, Pat, so we'll see what we can do. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. So how many friends are too many friends? I mean, how many people can you still call your friend but still have a decent, connected relationship with them? Maybe you've heard of the Dunbar number. This is based on a 1993 study by Dr. Robin Dunbar. He's an anthrop anthropologist and psychologist at Oxford University. He theorized that humans can't have any more than about 150 meaningful relationships. So that now they call that Dunbar's number. I don't know, 150 seemed like a lot to me, but Raji Sohal is back with us now to talk about this. Doesn't that seem like a lot to you? Okay, at first it struck me as a lot because these days I feel lucky to, you know, be able to count five close friends. Um, but 
Actually, you know, you think about it and it makes sense. So for Dunbar, what defines a meaningful relationship is those people you know well enough to greet without feeling awkward if you ran into them at an airport lounge. And so for me, that's about 600 people. But researchers at Stockholm I'm University... just getting to know you on this, Raji. That's- yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they call the number into question and say in reality, now you're going to be surprised at this, in reality, the number's much higher. The original study looked at monkeys and apes, and it determined that the size of their neocortex, the part of the brain that's responsible for conscious thought, they looked at that and they correlated it with the size of the groups they lived among. And that ideal group size was on average 150. I talked to Professor Louise Barrett. She's a psychology professor at the University of Lethbridge, and she studied under Dunbar. She says the new Swedish research is solid. They're very well done analyses. I think they, they um, you know, provide exactly what you'd expect to see if the scientific process is doing its job. They've got more evidence, new evidence, and they've reassessed this idea. And in the light of that, they're like, yep, we can't really come up with a single number that that represents a cognitive limit to how many friends people can have. So I think that's I think that's exactly what you'd hope to see from how science is supposed to work. I talked to Simon Ford, a professor of entrepreneurship at SFU School of Business, and he was not surprised that our number of friendships is way higher than it was before. When you look at the social circle of uh, younger students these days, it's exploded. Um, The hyper-connected reality of online life means that uh, 150 would be a very small number for most students when they're interacting with peers in their classes, um, with their extracurricular activities. Okay, so let me get this straight then, because it feels like there's different rules here. Is it the people that you can greet comfortably at an airport, or is it also all the people that you're connected to even online, like LinkedIn, Facebook, like all of that? So, Simi, for some people, being in touch with folks on LinkedIn or Facebook and that kind of thing, that's not a meaningful relationship, but for others, it is. And some might dismiss this online element of friendships, but Dr. Ford identifies himself as an introvert. And I, I think asked him I would, what his number is. I think I would have uh, uh, low double figures in terms of people I would consider to be close friends. But uh, over the last couple of years, I've built up my LinkedIn professional network to being over 2,000. Uh, I would say three to 400 of those are people that I would have no problem at all reaching out to um, just to ask them for something. That's a lot of people. Yeah, I'm one of these people, Simi, that has forged, to be honest, a lot of meaningful relationships online. I'm talking about people that I will send a gift to if they have had a baby. I will, if I've heard some interesting news story that I, I think might interest them, I'll send it to them, even though I've never met them. And I have regular social, meaningful interactions with these people. So yeah, I think that number is quite large for some people and, you know, smaller for others. Psychology professor Louise Barrett, though, she says it's much easier to stay in touch with FaceTime, Zoom, Clubhouse, this kind of thing, but they're not necessarily making people closer. What's become very obvious is we can sustain our relationships at a distance, and people have been doing that. But what's really obvious, and I think this is where some of um, Professor Dunbar's other work comes into it, is we really do miss face-to-face interactions. And there's something to be said about being with other people in person that isn't replicated via Zoom or any of those kinds of things. Because, I mean, I think one of the things is we're just used to getting so much feedback from other people in a nonverbal way. And if you have even the littlest um, delay on a Zoom chat, you know, you end up in those kind of things where you're going, no, you go, you you go, you, and you're talking over each other and it just ruins the flow of conversation. So I think, I think face-to-face Um, lack of face-to-face contact. I think everybody has found that really hard. Okay, that's fascinating. So Raji, what would be your number, do you think? Realistically, I would say my number is probably around 400. Yeah, mine's more like four. So that's a difference. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? I have a feeling that people who are younger than me, their number is way bigger. Like they're pros at networking. They're pros at keeping a lot of people in this huge, robust circle. And the research has found that people who are using LinkedIn often get the most help from those that are in their periphery, not those that are close to them. That's fascinating stuff. Raji, thank you.
Thanks, Simi. That's our contributor, Raji Silhal. What's your number? How many people do you think in your circle that you have that you have a connected, meaningful relationship with 150 more? You can email me, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, by all accounts, there is a humanitarian crisis going on in India right now because of COVID-19. And the stories coming out of that country are just awful. It's clear they need all the help they can get. Now, Canada has been sending supplies, but there is a way for people to do more. The Humanitarian Coalition is trying to bring more awareness about this crisis to Canadians, along with highlighting ways that we can all help. And for more on that and how you can get involved, we're joined now by Christina Phillips, Manager of Communications for the Canadian Food Grains Bank. Christina, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. How great is the need right now? The need is huge. Uh, The numbers that we're seeing of infections are staggering. Uh, Some estimates are it's probably around $400,000 cases each day. That's huge. So what can Canadians here do to help? So the Humanitarian Coalition is asking, uh, we've gathered together, it's uh, about 12 agencies that come together to form a cohesive response, and we're asking Canadians to make a donation at together.ca, and together we're providing things like oxygen, ventilators, uh, food uh, for uh, because food security come, becomes an issue in any kind of crisis, as well as promoting COVID vaccination and safe hygiene practices. Is there a place where Canadians can go? Is it online? Like, how do they get directly involved? Yes, if uh, you want to go to together.ca, you can easily make a donation through the Humanitarian Coalition site. Or if you're more comfortable calling, you can call one 855 461 2154. How do you even decide, Christina? Like, where does that help go? It sounds like the need is great, like all over the country. It is all over the country. And so the way the coalition works is we all already have partners on the ground who are already there and working. And so they're assessing the situations. They're going to areas that are most needed and where we already have uh, frontline workers that are able to deliver right away. Now, I understand this is the kind of work that the Humanitarian Coalition does, right? Like they jump in and they get involved wherever the need is. Exactly. We sort of make an assessment. Now, there's lots of crises everywhere, um, but we sort of see where we can come together and where we can really make a, a bigger impact. It does seem like, though, that they need everything right now, doesn't it? It does, right? It's it's staggering. As someone who is of Indian descent, I hear from it personally, from family members. Um, you know, a lot of areas are going into lockdown, and I think many of us here in Canada can relate to that, but it's that much more scarier when you just see how many people are being affected and how many people are dying. Okay, so if people do want to help, then Christina, one more time, how can they do that? Uh, if they want to go online, please go to together.ca or you can call at one 461 All right, we'll do that. Thank you for highlighting that for us this morning. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. It said people who don't pay their COVID-19 related fines could be refused a driver's license renewal or have trouble with that whole process. There's a lot for us to talk about this morning with Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, who joins us now. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Good morning. Okay, so how is that going to work? Well, uh, when you go to renew your driver's license or <clears throat> when you go each year to, uh, to buy your, your insurance, you also get you renew what's called your vehicle license at the same time. Uh, and so that uh, the legislation uh, will allow uh, that if you have uh, outstanding fines, COVID-related fines, then we can refuse to issue uh, the driver's license, uh, vehicle license, uh, until they're paid. Okay, so how quickly will that be put into place and once this legislation passes? Uh, the legislation, the amendments will come into force on July 1st, and they are retroactive back to the start of the pandemic. Okay, so essentially at that point forward, if you're renewing your driver's license and you owe a COVID-19 fine, you're going to have to pay up. Absolutely. Have you been disappointed by the, the how few people have actually been paying up on these fines? Um, it's one of those things where it, the... Uh, Whenever there's a ticket, people are able to dispute the ticket. Uh, every you know administrative ticket has to have that process, and so that's in place. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who, for some reason, have taken the view that the rules don't apply to them, and they tend to have 
uh, particularly when it comes to COVID, and they have some extreme views, uh, you know, about, you know, that whether or not COVID's real or, or that they don't need to wear a mask or they don't need to abide by the, the provincial health orders. So in some ways, I'm not surprised. Uh, but the reality is this. Most people have been doing the right thing in this province. And if these people think that uh, they can just ignore the fine, no, they can't. Uh, they're going to have to renew their license, their insurance, and they're going to have to pay that fine. This is a debt collection measure that's particularly effective. And what did you think when you heard that it sounds like RCMP actually issued one of those travel restriction tickets over on the Malahat? Um, again, I was, uh, you know, the, the rules are there. Uh, the health orders are there. Um, most people have been doing the right thing. And we've said all along, this isn't about punishments, it's about getting people to do the right thing. And we have seen, you know, ferry traffic is down significantly. Uh, it's about 50% of uh, where it normally is. Uh, and that's not including the fact that we're on a reduced ferry schedule right now. Um, there's reduced sailings. We're not on the summer schedule yet. So, um, you know, I, I think most people are doing the right thing. And what they want to know is that those who, who have been ticketed are going to uh, have to pay their fine. And this will uh, ensure that they do. Okay, so I think we can say that the, even the idea of a road check has been successful in, in preventing people from traveling. And if that's the case then, Minister, why not do this along the Alberta border, right? Because there's more concerns being raised about the rate of COVID-19 in that province, and yet people from there can still come into BC. No, I understand that. And we, we, we monitor the situation and we put in place uh, the, the, the prohibitions and the, the, the regulations based on the advice from the provincial health officer. What we've seen and what we know is that the, the biggest area of transmission is here in the lower mainland. Um, and that that's where the uh, and that's where we need to uh, to have that enforcement taking place in terms of ensuring that people aren't going from the lower mainland uh, to the interior. That being said, um, we do put warnings uh, signs um, and the, the the board signs on the routes into British Columbia from Alberta. We have done media work in Alberta, telling people now is not the time to come to do that. And we will continue uh, uh, to make sure that that, that message is, is driven home. Um, and that, uh, but the, the real focus has been uh, where the where the hot spots are, uh, and it's this inter inside British Columbia travel has been the issue. Right. Is there any consideration to making that just a bit more strict, like getting the message out even more to people in Alberta? Um, we will certainly continue uh, our efforts to get that message out to people in Alberta. And obviously, you know, the provincial health officer monitors the situation, looks at what's going on. Um, we know we've seen orders change from time to time in responding to the situation. And so if, 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 uh, if you know, orders need to change, then, then they will change. Uh, while I have you, I also have to ask you, today's the day that you're supposed to be meeting with Metro Vancouver police chiefs about the, the gang violence we've seen. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, this afternoon. Okay, so what what do you hope to get out of that? Like, what is that discussion, do you think, going to center on? Well, I think it's going to center on a number of things. Uh, one, uh, getting a really uh, a, a thorough briefing and, uh, in terms of what's happening right across the lower mainland from the perspective of the different, the different uh, policing agencies, uh, RCMP and municipal, uh, within, uh, within, within the lower mainland. Um, I know that uh, there's significant cooperation taking place uh, making sure, getting an understanding of how that's working. Also, if uh, if there's an, there's an opportunity, are there any gaps uh, that is a, as you know from the province's perspective that we need to be looking at? Uh, that that are there some additional measures that they would like us to do? Um, they've said it's not a resource. Police have said this is not a resources issue. Uh, but I want to make sure that you know, are there any other any other areas that we should uh, we should look at? Uh, gaps that need to be to be to be filled, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a. I'm looking forward to it. Um, the bottom line is this: the province, police, whether it's municipal, RCMP, are all working together and cooperating um, as they should be. That this is a top priority, and that uh, whether it's IHIT or CFSEU, all agencies are bringing all resources to bear on this problem. Could there be more cooperation? And we were talking to Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart earlier this morning, and he said one of the things he really wants to push for, once again, is the idea of a regional police force. Well, um, that, in order for that to happen, there has to be uh, a political, um, political uh, support for that. And I've not seen that yet at the local level. What I have seen, though, is the, the integration uh, that, that's required 
uh, take place in terms of IHIT, for example, and CFSEU. Uh, it's the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team. Now, Vancouver is not a part of that. Uh, they have their own investigation unit, but there is um, extremely close collaboration going on, uh, and that needs to continue, and we need to make sure that that continues, and that it's the same with uh, CFSEU. Um, that uh, that uh, that uh, the coordinated special forces enforcement unit uh, that that also is uh, cooperating um, with with IHIT uh, and municipal police forces. So that is taking place, and we need to make sure it continues. Okay. So then, what is your message to the police chiefs when you meet with them today about what has been going on? Well, I think all of us are uh, just find this absolutely um, you know appalling um, uh, upsurge in violence that we have seen in the last few weeks. Uh, and we need to make sure that every available resource that uh, the police have is being brought to bear on this and that uh, that everybody is cooperating, that, you know, nobody is operating in a silo and that uh, that is absolutely crucial. But I think that most importantly, the public needs to know that that's what's taking place, that the police are working cooperatively, there's collaboration, and it's their top priority and they are doing uh, an incredible job. Uh, I mean, one of the things to remember is is that, we, yes, we've had these shootings, but at the same time, there have been arrests made as well in a number of these cases. Uh, the shooting in Burnaby, the arrest was made um, a couple of days later, and the guy's been charged with first-degree murder. Two of the other cases in Surrey, arrests were made. Uh, and so that, uh, um, you know, that the cases that, that still need to be solved, every resource is going to be brought to bear to, uh, to, to solve them. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. That is Mike Farnworth, BC's Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General, talking about a number of different topics. It's interesting to note the political will to make a regional police force happen. So we know that Vancouver Mayor says that, yeah, he supports this idea. So the question is, do other municipalities in Metro Vancouver support that idea as well? It's a question that I think we're probably going to have to start asking to find out is there a desire? Do you think that's a good idea? A regional police force from Metro Vancouver is one way to tackle gang activity and crime more effectively. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Uh, right now, we're going to find out what's coming up next on the Mike Smith Show. George Affleck sitting in. Hey, Simi. Today on the show, we'll be talking more about the announcement on how COVID rule breakers will be punished. And we'll hear from the BC tourism sector. The pandemic's been decimating for them, and they want to know what the B.C. government's plan is, if any, to reopen. All this and more on the Mike Smith Show. Thank you very much for that, George. Yep, he is coming up next. There is a lot to talk about. As you heard Mike Farnworth say, he's meeting with police chiefs in Metro Vancouver this afternoon. You'll certainly be getting lots of updates about that. We have an in-person briefing today from uh, the Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry. That, I believe, is 2 o'clock this afternoon, so you'll hear that live on the Jill Bennett Show. So yeah, there's a lot going on out there. Keep it tuned in right here for the very latest on all of those developing stories. In the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, you can email me, simi at cknw.com.